Ephesians 5, starting at verse 1, reading through verse 14. This is the word of our Lord. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not even be named among you, as it is fitting for saints. Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man, who is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But as all, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep, arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. This is the word of our Lord. Let us pray together. Father, we do pray that you bless your word to our hearts. Even as we consider it this morning, we pray that that you would uh, open our eyes to see wonderful things concerning you in your law. For us, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Ideally, for this sermon, you're going to have a Bible open in front of me, of of you. of, Of course, in front of me, but in front of you. Uh, in the device or something, because we're going to be flipping through the book of Ephesians quite a bit today as we return to our series on the book of Ephesians. Uh, returning to Ephesians this week for me was like returning back uh, to a good friend, uh, revisiting a good friend, re- becoming reacquainted with an old friend and uh, uh, a friend that you sincerely missed. So I'm glad that we can go back to a, our series on the Ephesian church after a six-plus-month hiatus since uh, March uh, 15th, the last time we considered the book of Ephesians. The uh, purpose of today's sermon is really to do that, to reacquaint us with the book of Ephesians. So it is a sermon on the whole book, as we become familiar with it again. Some of it's going to be review, uh, and some of it may be some new information that you hadn't heard before. Uh, We are going through a series, not necessarily through the book of Ephesians, but through the Ephesian church. We started in Acts 18 and 19, then we went to Acts 20. We're going to, Lord willing, go through the whole epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, and then finish it with uh, Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7, where the Lord Jesus Christ directly addresses the messenger of the church in Ephesus. At first, I thought that we also go through First and Second Timothy, because Timothy was the pastor of the Ephesian church when Paul wrote to, to him. But uh, that has proven to be a, a bit of a, of a too ambitious plan 
uh, we are going to uh, finish Ephesians and then go on to our next series. As most of you know, the Lord used Paul to plant the church in Ephesus during his uh, third missionary journey. As you remember, Paul, uh, at least in the book of Acts, Paul is said to have gone in three missionary journeys. We know that he took at least one more that's not recorded in the book of Acts. There is uh, great evidence that he went to, to Spain and then to Crete uh, in, after, in the post-Acts Acts, uh, life of uh, Paul. But on the third recorded missionary journey, he stopped by Ephesus. He spent three years there between the years 53 and 56 of our era where he established this church. He spent the longest in Ephesus than he did anywhere else in his ministry life. Uh, uh, The only other place he spent that much time was in the Arabian Desert when he was first converted to Christianity. The Lord took him to the desert and he spent three years there being trained by the Lord. Ephesus was a a very big city for the time. Over 250,000 people uh, lived in Ephesus. So just a little smaller than Thurston County. I think Thurston County is at 277 currently. So just a little smaller than uh, Thurston County. And was a city that was known for its major massive temple to Diana. Uh, or as he was known also as Artemis, a Greek goddess. And that temple really fueled the economy of the city, uh, alongside with the port. Now, by the time Paul comes to Ephesus, the port is not as important because it's starting to silt, uh, to silt and boats were not able to come up to Ephesus uh, that easily anymore. So the economy of Ephesus was fueled by selling things related to this temple. So you can only imagine the mindset of the city to when this religion comes in, a religion that at face value is going to destroy your economy. Because this religion says that the God you worship is a false God. Uh, by the time Paul leaves Ephesus, he leaves behind an established church. A church that is healthy, though Every healthy church has problems, and that's why we have the epistle to the Ephesians. A church that had an established Presbyterian form of government, and a church that was actively multiplying, not just in in terms of people attending the services, but in terms of establishing other churches. Colossians, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Hierapolis, Sardis, Smyrna. These were all churches that were likely planted by the folks in Ephesus that Paul had left behind once he left uh, Ephesus. As I said, three books of the Bible are directly or indirectly written to this church. The, the epistle to the Ephesians and then First and Second Timothy as well. And as I said earlier, the, the Ephesian church is also addressed in Revelation. It's the first of the seven letters in the book of Revelation is to the Ephesian church. Because by the time Revelation comes around, so church planted between 53 and 56 of our era. Revelation is written around 95 AD. By that time, Ephesus, the Ephesian church, had left its first love. And Christ then addresses the messenger of the church encouraging them, commanding them to return to their first love. Today, the ancient city of Ephesus is in the modern country of Turkey, uh, southeast of Istanbul, 
And there is very little Christianity left in the region. As a matter of fact, the whole of Turkey is, is rated one of the top five most unchurched countries in the world. And that was, in, in some ways, the birthplace of Western Christianity. If you think about all that's going on there, with all the churches that were planted there, all the missionary activity going there, uh, and all, how that launched into the evangelizing of Europe, and of North Africa, and of Persia, and of China, all coming from ancient Turkey. And today, there is nothing there. Very little Christianity left in Turkey. And this is really our first lesson for today. No church is immune to falling. There's no church. There's, we have been around now for 57 years. We have gone beyond the average of a church, a particular Presbyterian church, of remaining faithful to the Lord. Uh, historically, at, at least in the last 200 years, uh, historians estimate that the Presbyterian church goes liberal every 30 years in their, in their own life. So we already almost doubled the average of the last 200 years, and we're so thankful for the Lord. But no church is immune to falling. If we, if we take our eyes away from Christ, as He's revealed to us in the Bible, we will lose track of whom we are and where we are going. If we let other issues that are not the gospel distract us, if we are distracted by life in this world, if we are distracted by bickering and fighting, if we are distracted by things that are contrary to the scriptures, we will fall. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 12, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. I used to work as a lifeguard growing up in Brazil on, on, on the beach, the ocean. And we rarely had to pull out somebody who did not know how to swim. We rarely had to help somebody who was drowning because they did not know how to swim. Because people who did not know how to swim stayed out of the water. It was the people who thought they were great at swimming who actually got in trouble in the water. And that's true of Christianity as well. People who think that they've arrived, that they don't need Christ anymore, who think that there's no way they can follow, fall. Those are the people that are in most danger. So let's take the time today to reacquaint ourselves with the epistle to the Ephesians as we return to it for the next several weeks. This is a very peculiar book. It is a book unlike any other. Uh, I know that Romans get a lot of time in, in the New Testament. I, I know that uh, as far as commentary writing, there's writing, there's more books written on Romans than on Ephesians. But I think Ephesians is one of the most beautiful of the New Testament uh, epistles. It's also full of peculiarities. For example, Ephesians, the book of Ephesians have the longest sentences in the whole of the Bible. The, the, they are the nightmare of people who like diagramming sentences, which you say, do people ever like that? I do. I know I'm weird that way, but I like diagramming. Maybe that's because how I learned um, language was by diagramming, you know, English sentences and so on. But if you look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, that's one sentence. 
That's it. One sentence. In English, you don't tell. You can't notice that because you have different punctuation. But in Greek, it's one sentence, which means there is one main verb. So you put that inside the diagram that everything is related to that one main verb. So you're going to end up with a diagram that might look like, I don't know, chicken scratch because of how difficult it is. And that's not only the only one. Uh, verse, so 3 through 14 of chapter 1 is one main, main uh, uh, one sentence. Verses 15 up to 23 of the same chapter is one main sentence. Chapter 3 verses 1 through 7 is one long, huge sentence as well with one verb and that uh, to, to help it express its meaning. So uh, it's almost as if Paul got so excited about what he was writing that he couldn't take a breath. You know, um, Elder Huey is the clerk of our sec- session. So he's the one that keeps our minutes and notes and he's a man who loves commas. If, if, if there's a space, he throws a comma in there because, you know, commas are to be used. Paul, in, the, in this book, is having the opposite feeling. He's not taking a, a breath. He's just speaking one long sentence to the whole, almost whole of chapter 1 because this is such an important stuff. But this book's not just about long sentences. That's just a peculiarity. Just something that uh, Greek nerds like me like looking at. But this book is, is also about prayer. I don't know if you realize that uh, over 50% of this epistle is either Paul praying or asking for prayer or talking about prayer. Over 50%. If you count the words in the book, over 50% of the words relate to prayer. For example, look at chapter 3, verse 14. He says, for this reason I bow my knees to my Father, to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length, and depth, and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What a beautiful prayer. And that's just a sample of the prayers that you find in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians is also about evangelism. Even though we don't think of Ephesians, we might think of John 3.16, we might think of the Roman roads as far as evangelism, but the whole book of Ephesians is about evangelism. You know, in chapters 1 and 2, is God, the missionary, evangelizing the world. In chapter 1, he's making plans to evangelize the world. In chapter 2, he is accomplishing those plans. In chapters 4 and following is now he sending the church to live that gospel and to proclaim that gospel to others. So this book is about evangelism. And this book is about being united with Christ. Uh, I, if you later on as you go home and you want to do some Bible study, um, use a, a, a Bible software or, or BibleGateway.org to do a search and just limit the search to the book of Ephesians and search it for in Christ, 
in Jesus, with Christ, with Jesus. And you're going to see that you're going to find that throughout the book of Ephesians more than any other book of the Bible. Our uh, in-Christness is of utmost importance to Paul in this, in this epistle. It, the epistle is written to the faithful in Christ Jesus. It tells us right off the bat in verse 1. God is the Father. Uh, God the Father has blessed us in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 3. Our redemption is in Christ. Chapter 1, verse 7. The Father is gathering together all His people in one in Christ Jesus. Verse 10 of chapter 1. We have obtained an inheritance in Christ Jesus. Verse 11, chapter 1. We have been made alive together with Christ. Chapter 2, verse 5. God the Father has made us sit in heavenly places in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 6. The kindness that we receive from God the Father is because we are united to Christ. Chapter 2, verse 7. We were recreated in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 10. In Christ, we become citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. Chapter 2, verse 13. Jews and Gentiles are made heirs together of God's covenant promises. You want to guess how? In Christ. Chapter 3, verse 6. We have a gospel boldness. In Christ, chapter 3, verse 12. And I'm going to stop here because you've got the pattern. That's only halfway to the book. It's a book of being in Christ. So, so for Paul, in the epistle of the Ephesians, the characteristic that dominates the Christian is his or hers in Christness. But this book is supremely about the church and her Lord. Everything else this book's about... It is supremely about the church and her Lord. Uh, D.A. Carson and Douglas Moo in their introduction uh, to the New Testament say this concerning this book. Clearly, the writer wants his readers to catch the splendid vision of one church, thoroughly united in the Lord, though it contains members of various races and is equipped by God to render significant service in this world. Though we are made up of all kinds of different people, and we are called to live our lives out to the world, we are one church in Christ. And Christ is our head, our husband, our Lord, our master, our king. So if you look at chapter 1, it is the entire, it's about the entire plan of salvation from eternity past to its completion in the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. More than any other book in the Bible, the, there's an emphasis in the ascension of Christ, where Christ is pictured as this reigning king sitting at the right hand of, of God the Father, ruling over the world, and he uses the church as the agent of his ruling over the world. The presence of Christ in this world is felt, is seen, is realized through the church. Chapter 1 ends with the declaration that the eternal plan of salvation was put in place so that Christ could be the head of the church. Look at verses 22 and 23 of chapter 1. And he, that's first he, there is God the Father, and he put all things under his feet, that's his there is Christ, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness 
of him who fills all in all. So chapter 1 is all about the plan of God. How God came out with this plan to save the elect. And that plan culminates with the sun being, with the sun rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, being made the head of the church, the ruler of the world, by being the head of the church. The church is the fullness of him. The church is his completeness. Christ becomes the perfect savior because of the church of Jesus Christ. Christ and the church bring all things together. You notice what he says there? That he put all things under Jesus so that he could be the head of the church. Christ and the church bring all things together. The church is the body of Christ in verse 23. Did you see that, that imagery? How we are so united with Christ that we are called His body. We are the one that do. We are the ones that do the things that the head call us to do. And the church declares the wisdom of God even to mighty spiritual beings. Look at chapter three, verse ten. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. So, how does the world, how do the spirits, how do the angels, how does the the, the powers of this world know about Christ? It's through the church. It is the church that possesses the manifold wisdom of God. This word manifold means more than you can count. It is the church that possesses that through the Spirit of God, through the Scriptures of God. Uh, The ESV translates that same verse a little more straightforward when it says, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. How is this world going to know about Christ? Through the church. Where is the wisdom of God is going to be found? In the church. God in Christ... Is to be glorified everywhere. But he is to be specially glorified in the church. The church brings glory to Christ. Look at verse 21 of chapter 3. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. The point is that God and the world look at the church. That's us. That's not something other church. Not this invisible church. There is the visible church of God represented in the local church. That's us here. The world looks at us and what it must see is the glory of God. That's what God designed for us. And you say, man, if I were God, I would probably do it differently. Now to us as the glory of God. But that's exactly what God purposed. And we are not God, and He is, and He does what's best. And the world is to look at us and see the glory of God. A bunch of broken people, people who are still sin, people who fail to love, people who fail to believe, and God says, look world, that's my glory right there. A bunch of people saved by the grace of Jesus, the blood of Jesus Christ, by my grace, through faith alone, that's my glory. Do I know what's, what's the most beautiful thing in the world? Look at my church. That's, that's how the book of Ephesians speaks of the church. The church is the bride of Christ who he loves and cherishes and who, is, who he is purifying for himself. Look at that chapter 5 verse 27. That he, Christ, may present her, the church, to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that he 
that she should be holy and without blemish. Whatever is happening to us today, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, if you're part of the church of Jesus Christ, whatever that is, it is Christ purifying us. It is Christ cherishing you. But you say, Pastor, my life really stinks right now. Uh, there's all kinds of things going on. There are things that are happening in my past. There are things happening right now. I, I just don't know how this can be. Well, God is telling you right now, even in the midst of despair that you may be in, Christ is cherishing you and purifying you. So, to pull a John Piper here, don't waste your despair. Don't waste the tragedies that are going through in your life. Don't waste the bad things that are happening to you because it is the purifying of God in your lives. And that being all true, then each segment in the church should live redeemed lives in relation to each other, in relation to the world. That's really what chapters 5, 22 through 6, 4 is all about. The church of Jesus Christ lived in, living out redeemed lives towards one another and towards the, the world. So that the world can see the glory of God. And then this book is about identity. And that's a very important thing because we live in a world where we're told to find identity in all kinds of places. And yet the Christian finds identity in Christ Jesus. We, we, we live in a world where gender identity is supposed to be the thing or critical race theory is supposed to be the thing where your identity is in the color of your skin or your identity is how you feel what you feel you are today. And yet, that's not where the Christian finds his or her identity. Chapter 1 describes how God planned for the salvation of the elect in order to give a new identity to them. Look at verse chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. See there? God makes a plan in order to give us a new identity. And what is our identity? Holy and blameless in Christ Jesus. That's who we are. In chapter 2, God executes this plan and applies that salvation purchase by Christ to the elect in order to, in reality, in history, give us a new identity. Look at uh, chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Just pay attention to all the togethers there. But God, that's chapter 2, verse 4, but God is rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us. Even when we're dead in trespasses, made us alive, us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in, G in Jesus Christ. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. You see the togetherness there. It's not just our together as being with each other, but it's our togetherness with Christ. That's our identity. We're together with Christ. In my Bible, I wrote next to it, Glorious. That's a glorious thought, that this, who, this is who we are in Christ Jesus. This is our position. This is our identity in Christ. So united to Christ that we are currently in heaven with Him. Uh, remember the, 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 the song, Debtors to Mercy Alone? I think it's the last verse that says that the, that we, that the souls in heaven 
the people who are already in the presence of God and the souls in heaven are happier but not more secure than we are of our destiny in heaven. Because we are positionally identified with Christ and we're sitting in heaven with Him. And there's nothing, nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? We are identified as God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus with the purpose of doing good works. Look at verse 10 of chapter 2. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's who we are. We are those who are created in Christ to actually do what God calls us to do in the Bible. It's not against our grain. This is what we are created to do in Jesus Christ. uh, To the, the word here for workmanship is the word that the English word poem comes from. So in some ways we could see that we are God's poem. We are God's work of art. We are God's handiwork. And He molded and shaped us in Christ Jesus in order to do good works that He prepared for us. That's who we are. So when we sin, we're doing the opposite of what God created us to do in Christ Jesus. Because our identity is as a work of art in Jesus Christ. And uh, some of us, it might look at us and think, oh, God must have gone through the surrealist process or phase of His uh, art uh, phase in life. But no, all of us are made. If you are believing in Jesus Christ, you've been recreated. And you're a beautiful work of art in Christ's image. That's your identity, created to good works in Christ Jesus. And chapter 3 tells us that we are, uh, that tells us that all this is accomplished in the church and is for all ethnicities. Look at chapter 3, verse 6. That the Gentiles should be the fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ through the gospel. We think of the word Gentiles, and we also think, or we always think of it in opposition to Jews. So we tend to think of Gentiles as Northern, White, Western Europeans. I think that's usually what comes from. But Gentiles is anyone who is not Jews. Remember the old uh, uh, children's song hymn? I don't think is allowed in church anymore. That, uh, that Jesus loved the little children and uh, was that red, yellow, black and white all are precious in his sight it's 100% true people of God the, we, our identity is not in the color of our skin our identity is in Christ and heaven is going to be way more multicolored than we might imagine Because heaven is described as a gathering of billions of billions and billions of people. Of every ethnicity. Every color. Every tongue. Every nation. Every kindred. Every family. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Uh, Every once in a while, the church that teens attends there in Tyre. It's called the Tyre Church. They follow the same uh, sort of philosophy as we do in the Bible Presbyterian Church. You just put the city name next to the church, so Olympia Bible Presbyterian Church, well, Tyre Church. They have a service, the United Service, with an African church. 
and you have so you have black Africans, you have Arab Africans, you have Middle Easterners, you have Westerners, you have white, and you have black, and you have brown, all together. And because they don't have translators, they also I don't I don't recommend that to be done all the time. But each one sings a common hymn in their own tongue. Now it's messy. But I think it's a little bit like heaven, where we have that unity in Christ, despite of our ethnicity. Because our identity is not in our gender. No, we, we are what God made us to do. You're either a man from birth on, or you're a woman from birth on. There's no other choice. Our, your the ultimate identity is not the color of your skin. The ultimate identity is not the language that you, spo- you speak. The ultimate identity is in your faith in Jesus Christ, what Christ has proclaimed you to be. And that's the only message that's going to unite the world. But, you know, we're so thankful that there have been so many peace accords lately, aren't we? But ultimately, peace is going to come when the whole world finds its identity in Jesus Christ. And nothing short of that is going to bring peace. To the peace of pre- Prince of Peace is the identity of those in the world. And in chapters 4 through 6, the elect, now saved or redeemed, live or walk according to their new identity as citizens of the kingdom of God. If you were to look at chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, or chapter 4, verses 17 through 18, or chapter 5, 1 and 2, chapter 5, 8 through 10, chapter 5, 15 through 16, these are all exhortations to walk. Walk according to your identity. Live life according to who you are in Jesus Christ. Christian faith and life are active. Look, Paul doesn't say rest in your identity. Though there's a measure of rest in Christ. He says walk according to your identity. Be active according to who Christ has made you to be. Which is his workmanship. His work of art created to good works. So as you finish here this morning, let me finish with five exhortations from what we said here. We saw that this book is over 50% about prayer. So be about prayer yourself. You have a listening ear in God. Puritan William Bridge said this, says that the Christian should pray because he has the ear of God. God is inclining his ear. The spirit within to indict that is to write or compose a prayer in your own heart. A friend in heaven to present. And God himself to receive his prayer. And then he says, it is a mercy to pray. Even though I never received the mercy prayed for. Do you believe that? That just the act of praying is a mercy from God already. Even if he never answers that prayer the way that you want him to answer. Because he answers all your prayers in Jesus' name. It may not just be the way you want them answered. But just the act of praying is a mercy from God. We also saw this book about evangelism. Because God is about evangelism. So be about evangelism. God has empowered you with His Spirit and His Word. What else do we need to evangelize the nations? John Calvin says, When... An opportunity for edification presents itself. We should realize that a door has been opened for us by the hand of God in order that we may introduce Christ into that place. And we should not refuse to accept the generous invitation that God thus gives us. 
How often do we think of the opportunity to evangelize as a generous, oops, a generous opportunity? Don't we usually think of it as, uh, oh man, I hope that door closes before I have to walk through it. And yet, Calvin says, God has given you a generous opportunity. Can you guys hear me okay? Well, we'll try this on. So be about evangelism. Thirdly, revel in your union with Christ. You are in Him. And He is in you. Again, Calvin says, In Christ, there is a perfection to which nothing can be added. And that's your identity. Perfect in Jesus Christ. Fourthly, be about the church. Be about the church. Jesus is, so he should be about the church. Uh, Samuel Stone, the uh, hymn writer, wrote, Elect from every nation, yet one or all the earth. Her charter of salvation, one Lord, one faith, one birth. One holy name she blesses, partakes one holy food. And to one hope she presses with every grace endued. Though with a scornful wonder, men see her sore oppressed. By schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints, their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Are you about the church? And you cannot be about the church in the abstract without being about the church in the concrete, about these people that are around you right here. Jesus is about the church. And lastly, Remember who you are. Remember who you are. God, you are God's new creation, specially created for good works. That's who you are if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. What, what has become new? All things about you. All things have become new. That's who you are. You're no longer a sinner who was bound to sin. You are a saint who at times still struggle with sin. But that sinner is not your identity anymore. Your identity is Christian. Follower of Christ. One who is in Christ. So be about your identity in Christ. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a good God to us. We thank you for bringing us together to Christ. Enable us to be faithful to our identity in him. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen.